ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The pandemic and all those lockdowns drastically altered our lives for more than two years. And it's now that we're starting to see the ongoing effects of all those years on the children who went through long periods of social isolation and online schooling. So what are the biggest challenges arising out of the pandemic for the next generation and how can we support them to not just survive it, but to thrive. Joining you, Dr. Kim Cornish, a Sir John, uh, Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor, that's a whole mouthful and I love it, and the founding director of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. You're the author of a new book, and it's a great one for us post-pandemic who can't hold our attention. It's a small one. It's called The Post-Pandemic Child. What is uh, and what do you mean by The Post-Pandemic Child? The, The book focuses on children who should have started school for the very first time three years ago. So they would be aged five and six and in 2020 and 2021 and of 700,000 children started school at that time. Um, Many more millions throughout the rest of the primary years. But I wrote this book following these kids because too often they are a really neglected population. We focus a lot, and rightly so, on youth and teenagers. Um, They went through hell and back in the pandemic. But our children didn't fare much better either and they can can just get in that forgotten Clyde where it's they'll catch up they'll catch up so I wanted to focus on these children and three years later they're now eight and nine and then how they would go into their teenage and adult years. You look absolutely like a mother describing her own children with these uh, these subjects <laughs> that you've researched. What's very particular though about that time uh, yeah. when we look at that specific point of development? It's the absolute formative years. You leave home, you leave home, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you go to school for the first time at the age of five and your your it's more the school is more than learning it's more than learning your numbers and learning your letters it's the absolute foundation of social and emotional development it's the scaffold that children then build and build and build across their lives so you learn at school to take instruction from an adult outside of home you learn to make friendships and how to cope when you can't connect and you you lose your friendships. You know, you, you learn to 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 be attentive, to to be listening and listening with others, taking turns in play, social play, you know, learning so much more than than only, you know, math and, 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 and literacy. It's, it's such. It's so interesting to think about it in that way, isn't it? Because yeah. um, that point of development, have we ever seen in another point in history that that process of leaving home, as you say, for the very first time and becoming an independent little human in the yes. world, have we ever seen that disrupted like not, we have? Not that I know of. And, and I think that's why there's, you know, it, it takes a lens like this book mm. to highlight these children, um, because they were at that very first point in their journey. And if you think about it now, they're eight and nine, and they had 25% of their life disrupted. And we're now trying to find that back, develop social skills that should have been at a different level by now. And 
dealing with the aftermath of children who didn't go back to school and still don't go back to school because not every child ran to the school gates when they were open. I'm fascinated to dig in really deeply into that social um, and emotional development of these particular children. But um, I really want to know too about that maths and the and the science and the numbers and the counting that you mentioned before. Data models predicted that um, as a result of the disruption, students would end up a year behind where they should be with their learning. What does the reality actually look like with the academic performance? I think we won't know the reality of that for at least a few more years. We, you know, we we have groups that were really vulnerable. They were vulnerable before the pandemic and they're still equally and more so vulnerable now. So those groups sometimes don't get into those plans. And and yet, you know, the stats and all, and you you kind of like, you need to have a lens over a number of years to actually see how these children, that didn't fare very well in the pandemic at all, um, how they then fare within the next five years before they start high school. So academics is, you know, it's just one blush of, of, what, of what child development is, of what, of, of what a school does. I can see children running home saying, Mum, it's only a blush, really, of what I should be doing. (laughs) I'm interested in that lens that you described too, though, and that talking about that vulnerable cohort. Are we very good at dissecting the information that we're getting back through the different intersections that our children um, are obviously subjected to? Class, poverty, all the extra uh, bits and pieces. Yeah, it's been a really tough time for those families. If you you look at what vulnerable children are, there are many different types, but... um, we have children who live in poverty. So the notion that everybody had access to the internet, therefore everybody could learn online, just didn't stand up. Um, so we've had some children that through poverty and through different you know, different aspects of their lives have been unable to access any internet are now two years behind. Um, they will be struggling to read and write even now. We've got children who come from family violence and the school was their only safe haven. That was taken away for two years with, again, limited access to, to internet in most cases. We've got children who live in the remote and, and regions of, of Victoria. We've got children who are... are children with neurodiverse backgrounds, children with autism, who, if you look at a child with autism, their entire day is structured so minutely and to suddenly take that child away in COVID into a home environment only would have been sheer hell for parents. And then two years later, when that has now gone into a routine at home, take them out again to put them into a school with a teacher they don't know is is hell all over again. So you've got these vulnerable groups that have struggled and they struggled before the pandemic. Maybe some already had mental health disorders before the pandemic. Some may have had anxiety before the pandemic and it's just been absolutely exasperated. And we need to focus on them. We need to focus on these children too. And we always hope that these disruptions in social order can sometimes, uh, you know, give the magnification that's required. But it's really, as you say, about that, their now response to that. I'm interested to know, too, you know, when we look at the academic side, that's one thing. But, of course, your focus here is really about that um, that emotional social development of children in this cohort. What have you seen? What's the greatest concern in that space for these children? Yeah, I think the greatest concern is not addressing early symptoms of of poor mental health. So a is child, it that we don't know how to Yeah. And I, I, I it's it's we have we have children who come in and 
they, they really worry. And so the early signs of anxiety, they may struggle to leave mum to go into school. It may be an absolute struggle every day to get them out of bed to go in, 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 into school. And when, they, when that isn't happening, because we don't have the resources or the words as parents to, tell our, to, to ask our children to interact with them on, on how they're feeling and talking about mental health, that early symptoms that could be addressed, that opportunity goes. And instead, you're, you're on a track to anxiety disorder when that child's 10. And so intervening really early, early prevention, early detection, working as, for, for me, one of the solutions I offer is um, a whole of school approach. The relationship between the teacher and the child was disrupted in COVID. And so coming together now, using resources and tools, early prevention, early detection tools that are digital that are are already there, the the Positive Parenting Programme, the Triple P, is one example where it is it is there for, for, for parents, there for young children to talk to each other about mental health and for parents to be trained to look at signs of early, early risk behaviours. If we combine that with teachers as well, you'd get children from kindergarten, you know, all the way through being stronger in mental health because we know what to see when it's really early before it gets to that clinical pointy end. That real notion that the village brings up the child Definitely. and is able That's to a great see way of saying it. Um, all yeah. the different facets and the different social yeah. environments that they encounter. One of the issues um, that I know is in my home as well is um, how screen time really yeah. shifted during those lockdowns. Um, it was significantly higher. It it was a matter of necessity for many children accessing education as well. How concerned are we about that shift in habitual behaviour? Oh, it's it's really concerning. It's almost like having to detox a whole generation of children. And you see the, the impact of when you take that screen away, um, how profoundly impacting that can be for families. Um, it's by necessity they need to do it. And it, it went from being an add-on to being a core part of their lives. And like any habit... It's going to take a long time and more than just mum and dad taking a screen away to, to, you know, to reduce that dependency. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's media, it's, it's any exposure that you can to, for children to see and for parents to see the impact of continued screen use as we're seeing it now. It's, it's communities opening up the doors to more outdoor play, to more, to more structured sports. You know, we saw so many community clubs that kids would play soccer, martial arts, a whole range of things just, just fall apart because parents and children didn't go back. I think having that community come in and, and have resources in that community that, that parents feel safe and children feel safe to go and do rather than just be at home with the screens would be amazing. Inversely, though, did we see um, a positive benefit of um, understanding how screens for some particular um, uh, children was an access point for social engagement? Yeah, it was. And for some children, it was, you know, they, they, they had an active social life on the screen. But these children that we're talking about in the book were five and six. So while teenagers and late primary schoolers may have found that an, an incredible interactive tool, it wasn't really there for, for, for young children. Um, and so now we, we really need to see it replaced by structured activities that children can go to without that screen time. 
So we are fairly clear from your insights as to some of the issues, some of the long-tail potential um, problems that we're seeing. In terms of those support systems, though, are there enough psychologists available at the moment to help all children? And if not, what do we do to to help kind of ease that, yeah. that really big issue of that gap? Yeah. There's an enormous wait list for psychologists and psychiatrists. Clearly, that is evidence of the impact for many children of, of the pandemic that they need to see a clinician um, because of how severe their problems are. It was great that the government um, gave more training places for psychology graduates to go into, but that will take years to come to fruition and it will never be enough. Um, We would like to see a new generation of psychology graduates, for example, coming forward um, to be trained in mental health, going into schools, going into into disability, going into age care, for example, using the skills of this amazing, you know, 15,000 graduates graduate every year with an accredited degree in psychology. If we could upskill and train them to, to be this mental health support in schools, that would be a great first step alongside the rollout completely of early prevention, early detection of mental health concerns right at the beginning with the family front and centre with the schools. Would that would 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 really stop a snowball from happening and so that thereby in years to come will freeze up the places that are currently being taken now for clinical psychologists for their for their patients. It's a huge issue that, thank goodness, you have the enthusiasm and passion, it sounds like, uh, Dr. Kim Cornish, for addressing some of these issues. We really appreciate your time. Kim Cornish is the Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor and Director of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. Her book, The Post-Pandemic Child, is a perfect length and it's part of the In Public Interest collection published by Monash University Press. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.